Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. All right, everyone, we got a particularly exciting episode of Reconsider for you. Uh, not just because stuff is hot in the news right now, it's hot, 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 but... Uh, this is actually a listener request. So uh, we're going to be addressing something that uh, Facetious at Historical Snark on Twitter uh, requested. And these are definitely hot topics and and frankly, we've needed to address them. So now is a great time. We're going to be talking about Venezuela and North Korea. And if you'd like to uh, send us a request for an episode, how can they do that, Xander? There's a couple of ways. You can always tweet at us, at ReconsiderPod. You can reach us on Facebook at the same handle, at ReconsiderPod. Or you can check out our shiny new request form at the bottom of our website, ReconsiderMedia.com. So there's a bunch of ways to get in touch with us. And if you'd like a guaranteed show of your choice within reason, where we work with you to put together the best show possible, that's actually a perk on Patreon, which a few people have gone ahead with. So if you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash reconsider, that's one of the perks that you can select. But if you just want to give us a buck a show, the Dan Carlin model, that's great too. We really appreciate it. And last but not least, housekeeping before we get into the meat of it. If you have a moment and wouldn't mind leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, be it iTunes or Google Play or Overcast, that would help us, but it'll also help get our message out to more folks about reconsidering their perspectives as all of the automatic algorithms pick up on the reviews and pushes up higher in that category. So we would really appreciate a review if you have a moment. Yeah, you're really not helping us. You're helping other people. That's what it's about. Help us help you. <laughs> help us help you. So, all right, Xander, Venezuela, North Korea, hot in the news right now. What the heck is going on? Yeah, so North Korea is playing really an outsized role on the world stage right now, and you might ask why. And... A nutshell response would be because nukes, right? I, it's it's obviously more complicated than that. And we're going to get into the details of what it is about North Korea's nu- nuclear weapons program and their missile program that is kind of causing all of the hubbub right now. And then in South America, Venezuela is also getting a lot of attention. These two things aren't necessarily related. They're just heavy in the news right now because they both countries are facing tense moments. 
Yes, they're hot, hot, hot. Exactly. Venezuela is going through some major changes. These are more internal rather than international in, in terms of how the confrontation is, is unfolding. So we'll talk about what's going on in both of these countries. Now, just a heads up, I study this sort of stuff at, a lot at work. My, my day job is at a company called Geopolitical Futures. I am a geopolitical analyst, and we approach international affairs through the perspective of geopolitical theory, which is without getting into the details uh, or too many details has to do with countries' capabilities and constraints. So I'm going to be approaching the discussion today from a very geopolitical perspective. What does each country want? What capabilities do, do they have to pursue their interests? What, what constraints do they face in pursuing those interests? And how do the interests and constraints of all parties involved either increase or decrease the likelihood of certain outcomes? This is how I at least think about the tensions on the Korean Peninsula, although constraints also, of course, matter in Venezuela, just in slightly different ways, because again, it is more of an internal conflict. This also means that if you're interested in in the way that I present at least, again, my analysis on this episode, there's a lot more details on Geopolitical Futures website, some articles that I've written, some articles that my colleagues have written, and we'll throw links up to these in the show notes. All right, let's jump in. Venezuela. You may know Venezuela as the home of Sitgo, which in my own native Boston, there's the beautiful big Sitgo sign just above Fenway Park. And even though there are no Sitgos in the United States anymore, we decided to keep it because it looks cool. But there's a lot of other stuff about Venezuela that you should know. And one of those is that back in 1992, there was this guy, Hugo Chavez. You might know his name. A big populist leader. You might say he was bigly. And he came to power in a civil military coup in 1992. He's a leftist populist. Uh, he's a very military, strong man sort of leader. But he was able to govern more or less effectively despite establishing some, uh, I might say, lousy economic policies that would eventually run the state coffers dry because, oh my gosh, was he charismatic and he had a lot of popular support. He was particularly great at blaming everyone else for Venezuela's problems and getting people to agree with that, mostly the United States. But then Chavez died. And then what happened, Xander? Well, then his right-hand man, Maduro, comes to power. Maduro, however, is not really this charismatic, shrewd leader with the wide popular base that Chavez was able to take advantage of. Maduro also came to power as Venezuela was beginning to suffer challenges both from Low oil prices, Venezuela is basically a petrostate. They're largely dependent on oil sales. They were also basically beginning to run out of money, in part because some of the policies that Chavez had implemented, and these include you know, subsidies for oil, but also food and, and medicines and all of that stuff. And these subsidies were a key or one aspect uh, with which Chavez was able to maintain his support for so long. Yeah, and what happened during Chavez's regime is he came to power in a period where there was a lot of poverty in Venezuela. And he said, look, you can't afford to buy stuff, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put price caps on things, I'm going to nationalize a bunch of stuff, I'm going to subsidize a bunch of stuff, and then you'll be able to afford things. And people said, great, we like to have things. That sounds good. We're starving here. 
But things started to spiral out of control. It's actually gotten so bad that when people go to the grocery stores, there's nothing on the shelves. A lot of people have to cross over the border to Colombia in order to get the basics they need, food, clothes, medicine. And what happened was this economic downward spiral. He subsidized and forced the prices down legally on a lot of stuff, which meant less of it was produced. And he said, well, we can't have that. So he nationalized a lot of industries and the state didn't run them well and they bled dry. Industries closed down. Stuff stops being made. Lack of stuff meant even higher prices on the market. So tougher price controls went in in order to keep the prices down so people can afford them. And that drove down supply. So there's even less stuff. And so now people are starving and old grannies are literally getting arrested for smuggling powdered milk across the border. It's nuts. And to make it all worse, they've run out of money in the state coffers to be able to try to prop the whole thing up because oil is cheap. And we'll talk about that later. The, the, throughout all of this, the, like the high-level story is Venezuela is running low on money. So they, they took out a lot of debt in order to keep the government running, keep the country running. But, you know, you, you need to pay debt back. And because they're generating less revenue from sales of oil uh, because of low energy prices, they have been struggling or to meet their debt payments. They there are dates on which payments are due, and the the initial schedule that the prior debt service schedule that Venezuela had going for it created challenging deadlines, and they were concerned that they weren't going to be able to meet those debt payments. So there's been a lot of restructuring of that debt going on, and Russia has been involved with this. Russia's state-owned oil company Rosneft. Uh, has economic interests in Venezuela's oil economy and has been basically helping Venezuela restructure this debt so they can term out these debt payments or extend them into the future so that the bulk of of those payments aren't due at one time or too soon. But it's not entirely clear how Venezuela is going to get out of this, in part because oil prices probably aren't going up anytime soon or in the medium term. The United States and Europe are growing decreasingly dependent on oil imports, largely because the United States went from a hydrocarbon importer to an exporter because of the shale revolution. So there's just a lot more oil out there and the U.S. doesn't need to buy it. And this has kind of changed politics forever. And in fact, it's compounded because OPEC's total oil output as a percentage of the world's has dropped. They have less influence on the total price, so there's less incentive for them to actually cut their production. So OPEC production remains high as well. There doesn't seem to be a clear path for oil prices to you know, magically go up and solve all of Venezuela's economic problems. I actually feel kind of bad for Maduro because he took over from Chavez at a time when sort of all of the economic sins since 1992 are finally coming to bite Venezuela right in the butt. And so people are not happy, are they, Xander? No, they're not. There have been massive protests, hundreds of thousands of people. People are getting killed, not not yet in massive numbers. These are still large protests and not a civil war. So think like in, in the range of maybe I think 100 people have been killed in recent months and in, in the most recent spat of protests, all, all the while against this backdrop of the government continuing to run out of money. So the, the opposition to the Maduro government has come primarily from the National Assembly, which is the legislature in Venezuela. 
the the MUD, which stands for Mesa de la Unidad Democrática, or the Democratic Unity Roundtable, is is the the opposition party in Venezuela. And there are other branches of the government that are basically under Maduro's thumbs. He he largely controls the judiciary. And at one point, uh, recently in the last couple of months, uh, the the Supreme Court actually passed a set of rulings that would have effectively nullified the authority of the National Assembly saying, look, you're not a legitimate source of power in the government, so the laws that you pass don't hold. However, after this ruling, there there was really a, a major popular backlash, and it was significant enough that the court qu- kind of quickly walked back on that ruling. But Maduro continues to have the judiciary on his side, as well as the, the military and police and security forces. There are some signs, however, that his support from the police and security forces are beginning to fray, or or at least we're beginning to see some internal division. And the point at which a challenged dictator starts to run into real trouble is when he is no longer able to control the people with guns in his country, right? So in the last week, we saw a small rebellion within the military at a military base. It it wasn't really a coup. It wasn't that big, and it was quickly put down. But we've seen that. There was this helicopter pilot who flew some bombs towards uh, Maduro's residence and and tried to attack him that way, who coincidentally and oddly enough is also an actor and was in like a Venezuelan action film. So that's kind of strange and fun to watch. So Maduro is seeing a, a fraying, a gradual fraying of support among the security forces. And while he attempted to nullify the National Assembly's authority with those court rulings, that failed. He's tried something else now. He's basically said that, look, because of the political de- uh, roadblocks, deadlock, we, we need to amend or create a new constitution. Oh, but hey, the National Assembly should not or does not have the authority to do that. So what we're going to do is have an election. And we're going to elect this constitutional assembly. And we're going to elect new people to draft the constitution in order to help resolve the country's political roadblocks. So this was ultimately a political move, right? Maduro is trying to take power out of the hands of the national assembly so that he can rewrite the rules of the game and put down the opposition. Yep, and people are not happy about this. So, of course, the protesters who were already kind of hot to trot did not go, that seems reasonable and legitimate, I'm just going to go home. No, they turned out in higher numbers with more people uh, and a lot more fury. So they've blocked roadways, a lot of Venezuela has sort of been shut down for business, and worse, uh, a number of people in the military have either current or former, have begun to speak out that this is a major problem. Uh, and that the military support may start to wane. And, and that's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies, right? When military leaders start to talk about how the military support might wane, it's likely to wane. The United States, in response, has imposed some sanctions on Venezuela's leaders. But it's not like the United States was really a fan of the Venezuelan regime anyways. It really didn't matter who was the president of Venezuela when... Chavez was in power. He kind of called whoever was in charge the devil and stuff like that. And uh, the United States mostly ignored the rhetoric, but whenever Venezuela really misbehaves, it slaps some sanctions down on there, hoping it will help. So what what's going to happen? I, I'm maybe somewhat preferential towards 
the position that that um, my company Geopolitical Futures has, because I think it's an accurate analysis. And our, our forecast there is that the Maduro government will fall sometime this year. So full disclosure, I think this is entirely likely. And if it doesn't happen in the next couple of months, it's going to happen sometime soon in 2018. And we don't exactly know what form this fall will take. But in Venezuela's history, pure straight-on military coups have generally been less effective than civil military cooperation. So when the military teams up with civil society, either politicians or you know leaders of mass protests, in order to affect major changes in the status of governing institutions. And what we're beginning to see now is as the mil- military gradually defects from under Maduro's control, they are beginning to form, again, this sort of partnership with mass protesting civil society. Now, Maduro's money problems aren't going anywhere. Oil prices are, are going to remain relatively low for this dynamic that Eric talked about a minute ago with, with shale oil and all the new supply that's been rolling, ro- uh, rolling onto the market in the last couple of years. So it's going to remain difficult or become increasingly difficult for Venezuela to repay their debt, but also to pay the people who point guns for the government. And these people at some point are going to begin to, they're already beginning to question whether they owe loyalty to their purported leader or to their people. Do they serve, you know, they serve their country, but what does serving their country mean now that there is such division within it? So now you know what I think, and, you know, you can evaluate how I've discussed these events appropriately with this background. But if, if you're interested more in this perspective, again, we'll we'll put up some links to uh, some some articles written at Geopolitical Futures that that delves into this detail a little bit more. Now, of course, Maduro is not taking this lying down. He has a clever plan in order to break the back of the civil part of the potential civil military engagement, because it's likely the case that if the civil part dies down, the military is not likely to act on their own due to the long history of straight up military coups not quite working. Uh, And so his plan, of course, was to take some opposition leaders who are very vocal, charismatic, that people are rallying around and uh, go kidnap from the homes and put them in jail. And of course, this worked great. No, just kidding, it didn't, because unlike certain countries, Venezuela does not have a totally brainwashed population that only consumes state-run media and doesn't actually get to talk about anything else lest they be, you know, packed off to reconcentration camps. There is a country, however, that does have that advantage. And what's that country, Xander? It's... North Korea. You got it in one. Nice work. And so, (laughs) North Korea, wow, that is a crazy place, right? Led by crazy people. Where do we even begin? So Kim Jong-un, obviously crazy, irrational, nutjob dictator who just – he just lives to oppress the living daylight out of his people, rob them blind, live fat off the land, and complain about the Americans all the time. Sounds like a pretty good job. Yeah, straightforward, right? Or, or at least this is oh, how yeah. it's almost always discussed in, in larger media outlets. I don't entirely buy this narrative. Now, what? Kim Jong-un – is without a doubt a ruthless dictator who oppresses his people. He oversees probably the most oppressive regime in, in, in the modern world. That's what I've heard. That's what everyone says. Millions of people think so. Exactly. So it must be right. 
but yes, I mean, he, he is a brutal dic- dictator. He he confines people to concentration camps, like hundreds of thousands of political prisoners are in concentration camps. And instead of just like throwing someone in, in a concentration camp for life, North Korea punishes three generations of that political dissident's family. So if if you are confined to a concentration camp, your kid and your grandkid will also be confined to that concentration camp and be forced into basically slave labor for your entire life. I mean, it's it's awful. But it's for your moral education. Yes, exactly. The, the idea, though, that he's this just insane, crazy, fat kid who really has no idea what's going on in the world and is just kind of like acting incoherently and feeding his relative to dogs and killing them with anti-aircraft guns... Um, well, actually, that those last parts are right, but I don't buy the narrative that he's insane and irrational. Now, <laughs> that's it's a tough case to make after those two examples. <laughs> <laughs> he feeds people to dogs. He's not crazy. Trust me. Why isn't he crazy, Xander? Tell me. Yeah, no, it's 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 a good point, right? Let, let's start with some of the arguments, and, and then I'll kind of like round back, come back around to my conclusion at the end here. But he he is young. So the point that he's maybe an experience, he's only presided over the country for five years, there's some merit to that. And we don't have as, you know, decades of data of his leadership experience or records of his action. But people basically said the same thing about his dad, Kim Jong-il. He was crazy, he was irrational, a messed up dictator who oppresses his people and, you know, is impossible to anticipate. And Kim Jong-il... Uh, inherited the position from his dad, Kim Il-sung, who founded the country in 1948, and also called him an oppressive dictator, but the the irrational bit is slapped onto the founder of the country a a little bit less. Now, why don't I think he's irrational? Or why don't I think the regime is necessarily irrational? Throughout the Cold War, North Korea wasn't as much of a pariah state as it is now under Kim Il-sung, but it it was isolated, and almost completely dependent on the Soviet Union for support. And in fact, the Soviet Union, Stalin was the one who encouraged Kim Il-sung to invade South Korea in 1950. Originally, China wanted nothing to do with that. China only got involved after Douglas MacArthur landed at at, uh, Incheon, won kind of unexpectedly this massive victory and decided instead of to just kind of like call it quits at the neck of the peninsula, push north, cross the Yalu River. And when this happened... China felt that American forces were just getting too close to its southern border and decided to push back in. Because as we discuss on our episode, Little Rock's Big Problems, one of China's perpetual security imperatives is to prevent themselves from getting encircled by foreign powers. Yep. And so MacArthur inadvertently convinced China that North Korea was critically important for its safety. Not to mention the fact that the surprise counter-invasion by the Chinese in response to this seemingly existential threat led to the most massive defeat of U.S. troops on the ground ever, except maybe the Civil War, but I wouldn't call the Confederates U.S. troops because that's what they self-identify as, not U.S. And so not only did we get our butts kicked and restore the... Uh, sort of the previous lines of the DMZ rather than defeat North Korea forever. But we convinced the Chinese, maybe we need to hold on to these guys and keep this buffer state, no matter how awful they are. Because, man, the last thing we want is the United States to have 
an ally with a nice big military base and air bases and all that stuff right on our border. That would be bad. We remember World War II. That wasn't too long ago. Yeah, so after the fall of the Soviet Union, China basically became North Korea's primary benefactor, but uh, they're not exactly buddies. China just prefers having a buffer state there and figures that it can somewhat influence North Korea, this weak, isolated regime on its border, a little bit more than it would be able to a unified Korea that who knows who they'd be allied with, right? But historically, like throughout thousands of years, Korea has generally been unified and has generally been antagonistic with China. Yeah, and so it's strange to think that China doesn't really love North Korea because they seem so supportive of them uh, in a in a way that is so frustrating to American policymakers. And they are supportive of them uh, to an extent, and it's to the extent that they're able to keep the North Korean regime in one piece. One, because they need that buffer state with a you know a big army of about four million people, which is really big. Uh, but secondly, they also s- sort of have the wolf by the ears. The second biggest risk to losing North Korea uh, is that if the regime collapses, you're going to have a massive refugee problem, right? Right now, you you have a state that stays in power because uh, its massively impoverished people are totally brainwashed to believe that, one, the rest of the world is way worse off, two, that Kim Jong-un is basically something of a demigod, Uh, And three, that if they are disloyal for a moment, you know, the whole world comes crashing down around them. Oh, and also they'll have a black bag put over them and their grandkids will end up in concentration camps like them. But if the North Korean regime collapses, if they no longer have that stream of propaganda, China is actually very worried that they're going to have tons of starving, brainwashed refugees pouring across their border. North Korea is 25 million people. And you might say, well, China is much bigger than that. But holy smokes, if they all concentrated in the Northeast, it would be a major problem. And so for China, the collapse of North Korea is not acceptable for those two reasons, as much as they may not be thrilled with their neighbor. And here's an example of a country acting in its interest rationally, despite the action that they're encouraging, which is basically supporting an oppressive dictatorship that puts millions of people into extreme misery, um, that still makes sense for China's security in order to prevent that inflow of refugees and also to prevent potentially U.S. and South Korean allied forces pushing north and and circling China. So what's the point of this, this historical tangent, right? Well, despite losing its major benefactor for decades and basically being excluded from the international system since the 1950s, having a backwards economy where you have millions of people still just like getting by on subsistence farming. And despite all this, this crazy, irrational dictatorship has managed to survive for seven decades and outlast the Soviet Union, this threatening superpower that for decades the U.S. thought was going to usurp its role in the world and cause its 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 collapse. Uh, I don't believe that irrational leaders hold on to power that long. And and here's the distinction when I talked about, you know, Kim Jong-un feeding his political opponents to dogs and shooting at them with these massive anti-aircraft guns is that ruthlessness and irrationality are not the same thing. But in day-to-day life, they 
basically are. I mean, it's exceedingly difficult to understand what could drive someone to be murderously violent. So we as a society tend to put a, a tag, a descriptor of irrational or crazy to describe them because we just it's hard to get into the mind of someone who does that. And and sometimes this description is effective. But when you're running an autocratic state with no friends in the world, I mean, kind of China, right? But not even them. And the world's most powerful country is your primary enemy. Then ruthless is not necessarily the same as irrational or insane. Yes. And as, as Machiavelli told his prince, it is better to be feared and loved. The Kims and their dynasty seem to be doing a pretty good job of having the best of both worlds. You know, you love me, right? Oh, yes, we totally love you. What about you? Well, at a... Right? Like, so what they're able to do is keep power both by brainwashing most people and when people start to go, wait a minute, this seems a little wrong, they're killed in such brutal ways that that message does get out there, right? It is a little like 1984 where, you know, a, a number of North Korean... Um, refugees have reported like, oh yeah, we know that if we say anything wrong, like really bad things are going to happen to us. That fear that is created by the brutality may actually be very important for the regime holding on. And so Kim Jong-un may also really enjoy this. Like he may be a very sick person. I'm not entirely sure, but it doesn't matter. Um, He may also personally be insane. We don't know for certain. He has only been in power for five years. But he isn't irrational just because he's a murderous, violent tyrant. He was undoubtedly brought up by his father. He was inculcated with North Korea's ultimate goal of reunifying the Korean peninsula under North Korean leadership with some semblance of a strategy to pursue that goal. And as of the 1990s, that strategy involves the development of nuclear weapons. And it's likely that the oligarchs, who are his advisors and ultimately critical to his success, and unlike Russia, these are not corporate oligarchs, but military oligarchs, um, it's likely that they are advising him on this strategy and supporting it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll return one more time to just feeding his opponents to dogs and shooting them with anti-aircraft guns, because when else do you get to say an expression like that? When this was going on within Kim Jong-un's first couple of years of power, um, this occurred in the context of him consolidating his rule and eliminating everyone that he thought might be an enemy. And when you look at the period immediately following Kim Jong-il taking power, the same exact thing happened. There There are two, three years where just a ton of people were purged in extraordinarily violent ways in order to solidify his control over the state apparatuses and ensure that he truly was the leader of the regime. So that's not unusual in North Korean history. Now, let's look at it from North Korea's eyes. North Korea is really the U.S.'s enemy, right? I mean, they're threatening the U.S. with a nuclear attack. But to, to understand why your enemy acts the way it does, you need to kind of try to look at the world through their eyes. Now, for North Korea, the U.S., it's, it, it's a giant, irrational mega power, And it gets involved where it doesn't concern them. So it's actually flipped. They think we're irrational. Why? Well, when the U.S. invaded Incheon in the Korean War to oppose the North Korean push south 
it completely surprised them. Now, this, this was in part because the Soviet Union told them it wouldn't happen, but it was also in part because the U.S. had basically previously declared under, under Truman that they just had no interest in containing communist pushes down south past a certain latitude. Truman had drawn some lines where, you know, he said the U.S. pledge would be uh, 100% certain above this line and we're going to contain the Soviet Union and below this line, we're not going to extend our, our military force. In order to be explicit about where the U.S. is willing to be pushed and where our, our critical interests were. And North Korea really didn't understand why the U.S. would care about the Korean Peninsula either. It didn't have any immediate concerns to them in their eyes. So the, the North invaded, expecting this to largely be a local affair with some Soviet support in terms of money and arms. Then out of nowhere, this this meddling superpower gets involved and beats the living snot out of them. Why is the U.S. getting involved in our local affairs? And this is is the historical memory of the United States that the North Korean regime constantly lives with and must respond to in the formulation of their country's grand strategy. Uh, a much longer historical memory is the one of an antagonistic China. So even though right now the two have overlapping interests, for hundreds of years, when the Korean Peninsula was unified, the two were very much at odds. North Korea feels alone in the world and isolated. Except, of course, they don't think it's their fault. It's everyone else's fault. Darn capitalism always holding communism back from finally murdering its way to utopia. Jeez. Yeah. Like I mentioned, I think a useful way to analyze the Korean Peninsula, as well as international affairs generally, is to identify these things called imperatives, security imperatives. What is an imperative? An imperative is a critical fundamental security concern of a country that relates intricately to its ability to survive and therefore the country desires to achieve that imperative even though they face constraints that means they may not be capable of achieving that imperative so for north korea the two critical imperatives that it faces are first and foremost regime survival making sure that they stick around but a related one is unification of the Korean Peninsula. And not just any form of unification, but one that's led by a northern-dominated regime. Because this would also continue to ensure regime survival to a certain way. As, you know, they, they would stick around and dominate the whole peninsula instead of just the north. So this first imperative, regime survival, involves preventing a U.S. attack on North Korea that could potentially, but not necessarily, destabilize the country and undermine the regime. And that attack, of course, would come to eliminate North Korea's nuclear capabilities. Yeah, the smart folks in North Korea know that they're in a constantly tenuous position. Right? It's not really all that stable a regime naturally when your country is 5% as rich per person as their neighbor just to the south after only 70 years of being separated. If people actually knew about this, they might get a little disgruntled. In fact, if there was any freedom of thought or press, uh, that might lead to rebellion or revolution. If this massive military propaganda complex was deeply interrupted, North Korea could be in serious trouble. Um, or if North Korea was attacked, some military leaders... 
who know a little more about what's going on than the average citizen might take their opportunity to make a move and take over the regime. The strain between different military leaders' support for the regime and their desire to rule the regime themselves is actually a real risk to the Kim family. And this strain might actually explain why a North Korean sub in 2010 attacked a South Korean submarine and destroyed it. Um, one of the one of the speculations is that one of the military leaders was actually trying to start a conflict that they would be able to use as an opportunity to take over. And so North Korea has to stay strong and it has to stay stable because it probably would not survive a period of instability, unlike, say, a democracy. Yes. That said, I, I think it's important to note that the potential for destabilization doesn't mean that it's a necessity in the event of an attack. Something that mm. we've written about at Geopolitical Futures is that while North Korea is undoubtedly an autocratic regime, it's essentially a form of a dictatorship, Kim Jong-un himself is not every state apparatus. There's actually a really complex system of government uh, governance through which Kim exercises his power. So a major war might not topple the regime. In fact, you can argue that if the regime sticks around, that a lot of people would look up to the government and say, oh man, we, we, if we didn't beat the U.S., at least like we withstood them and our glorious leader was able to get us through this. So a lot of people assume that a U.S. attack on North Korea means definitely destabilization. I think it's important to note that that's not necessarily the case. Now, coming to the second imperative which is unification of the Korean Peninsula under a North-led regime. In order to accomplish this, North Korea would have to find a way to eject the 28,000, 28,500 28 U.S. soldiers that are currently stationed on the Korean Peninsula in South Korea, since this effectively acts as like a deterrent to North Korean invasion of the South, right? Because if North Korea invades South Korea and the U.S. isn't there, then it's our ally and it's it's bad and, you know, it, it might, might amount to rhetoric. We might participate in the conflict. Who knows? It's hard to tell. But if North Korea invades South Korea and starts killing U.S. soldiers, then all of a sudden the U.S. has an obligation to retaliate and give, get involved. Yeah, we uh, Americans don't respond well to American blood being shed in an attack. You might remember, for example, Pearl Harbor and 9-11 kind of woke the sleeping giant uh, twice and uh, led to a you know massive expenditure of resources and you know far more life in order to respond and make it clear that no, 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 you don't get to do that again and no one else will either. So there's a risk in invading South Korea of sort of waking waking a beast that, uh, while not slumbering right now, is is poised and waiting rather than striking. Exactly. So to to achieve this this goal of unifying the Korean Peninsula, North Korea has to like either invade South Korea or militarily bully it into accepting a number of concessions. And neither of these are going to be really effective strategies if U.S. forces remain in South Korea. So the first thing that North Korea needs to do, its strategy to achieve the second imperative of unifying the Korean Peninsula is finding a way to eject U.S. forces in South Korea. And there's really three reasons that unifying the 
peninsula is a true imperative for North Korea rather than an option. One of them is economic. So South Korea has literally 40 times the total wealth of North Korea, and North Korea is largely dependent on other countries' literal generosity, including South Korea and China, to survive and persist. Uh, and, and they cannot allow themselves in the super long term to be a beggar state forever. And so getting the wealth of South Korea would fix that problem. Um, life also gets a lot easier when you control the entire nation of people rather than only a third of it, ultimately, and constantly have a threat to the South. But just as importantly, the one, part of the ideological basis for support of the North Korean regime and the willingness to pay for its military, which is massive and consumes you know, like, something like half the GDP of the country, that's probably the wrong number, but large, is the ideological foundation of North Korea, which is to ultimately unite South Korea. North Korea doesn't want to be North Korea. It wants to be Korea. And if it ever said, you know what, we're not going to unite with the South, that could be a major blow to the leadership. And so even if it's inconvenient at a given moment to try to push forward unification with the South, it needs to continue. And that's what makes it an imperative. And these two imperatives, unfortunately, clash directly with North Korea's arch enemy, the United States. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right. So what, what is the U.S.'s core imperative, at least as it relates directly to the Korean Peninsula? Because the U.S. has like major global imperatives that aren't necessarily directly relevant in the case of North Korea, in the case of the Korean Peninsula, but the U.S.'s core imperative with North Korea is to prevent it from attaining a nuclear weapon that can strike the United States. So th these interests are competing, right? North Korea needs to develop a nuclear weapon as an effective deterrent against the U.S. or potentially a bargaining chip to get U.S. forces off the peninsula, and the U.S. needs to prevent that capability from being developed in the first place. So what happens? When you have a clash of fundamental security imperatives, both of which cannot be fulfilled at the same time, conflict begins to arise. That's one of the uh, that's one of the theories in the quote realist camp of foreign policy, of which sort of the geopolitical modeling is a part. And 
We'll actually have a podcast episode on realism later, so don't worry about it too much right now. But what it means is that it's these competing imperatives, as opposed to the personalities of the people in charge of these two countries, that are leading North Korea and the United States towards inevitable conflict. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But why, Xander, after dozens of years developing nuclear capability, why is it coming to a head now? Yeah, I mean, North Korea has been working on both its nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs for a while. But they're getting closer and closer to getting to a point where they have a deliverable, ruggedized nuclear warhead that can be affixed to an intercontinental ballistic missile or an ICBM. We're going to break all those terms down. So first, a... A miniaturized nuclear weapon is is just one that can fit on the tip of a missile. A ruggedized nuclear warhead is, well, it's really like a ruggedized reentry vehicle. But what's meant by ruggedization, which isn't a word, but it is now. Oh, it's a really cool word. Don't say that. Ruggedization. Oxford English Dictionary, if you're listening, make it happen. R- ruggedization is the idea that... Sure, you can put this nuclear warhead on the tip of a missile, and maybe that missile can fly 10,000 miles and reach the U.S., but the thing with ballistic missiles is the way they work is there's enough fuel to launch them on an arc, a parabolic arc that flies them far enough up that when they reach their, their zenith, the very top of that arc, they don't need any more fuel because they're traveling fast enough that when they start coming back down their existing velocity just basically is is enough to keep them going. That's the ballistic part. Exactly. That's what ballistic means as opposed to cruise missiles, which fly and navigate uh, within the atmosphere. So they need a different type of guidance system. Now, part and parcel of being a ballistic missile is traveling up through and coming back down through the atmosphere. And if you've ever watched video of astronauts re-entering, you'll know that everything gets really hot and stressed out for a fairly significant period of time. And it's really hard to design things to withstand that heat and pressure. So a ruggedized warhead or re-entry vehicle is one that can withstand this heat and pressure of re-entering the atmosphere without the warhead getting destroyed in the process. And so all that means is that if they have a miniaturized nuclear warhead, if they have a ruggedized reentry vehicle, and they have an intercontinental ballistic missile system that they can actually accurately point and chuck in a direction and have it hit a long way away, these three elements, then they can successfully strike the United States with a nuclear-tipped warhead, which is something that is imperatively unacceptable to the United States. And so we've obviously been worried about this for some time. But what's happened recently? Well, it turns out that North Korea uh, seems to have sort of jumped the technology curve faster than most people thought they would. Uh, Currently, defense white papers from both the United States and Japan say it is, quote, conceivable that North Korea is closer to a deliverable miniaturized nuclear warhead than we had previously thought. The Defense Intelligence Agency, which is a branch of the DOD, 
thinks that North Korea has successfully produced a miniaturized nuclear warhead that they could slap on an ICBM. So that would give them, if they have the ruggedized reentry vehicle, a plausible way to strike Guam, perhaps Hawaii, Alaska, and maybe even the West Coast if they're willing to risk it and aren't too worried about missing and landing in the Pacific. Now, do they have the ICBM? The answer is probably. One month back, they tested an ICBM that reached the altitude that it would need to go long distance. They aimed it and it fell into the East China Sea or Sea of Japan or whatever you want to call it, narrowly missing a plane that was flying out of Australia. No joke. Now, Video evidence suggests that the re-entry vehicle burned up during re-entry, which suggests that it's not sufficiently ruggedized. However, that does make them very, very close. Now, there's also some unclassified stuff, and probably a lot of unclassified stuff. So we here at Reconsider can't be as certain as the people that are sitting in literally the war room or the national security briefing about what North Korea's capabilities might be. They might even be further advanced. Yeah, the the things that we can know with some degree of certainty is that it, it, it appears they have a ballistic missile that can travel long distances. If, if you look into this test that was done at the end of July, you'll notice it traveled a couple thousand kilometers, I think. And the reason experts believe that that is sufficient evidence to show that they have a missile that can reach Guam or the West Coast is because, if you'll remember, these ballistic missiles travel at a parabolic arc, and North Korea purposefully sent this particular missile test at a higher arc in order to not be too provocative. So to show like, hey, look at what we got without crossing any red lines and provoking an attack. But the argument made by a lot of missile experts is, okay, well, if you just lower that trajectory a little bit, then it doesn't go as high. It goes a lot further, right? So that that's something that we have some degree of evidence for. The, the most recent news out of Japan and the U.S., uh, in Japan, it was a defense white paper. In the U.S., as I understand it, there was actually a classified report, and there were leaks of what was in that classified report. So we don't have everything that's in the report. We know that the report mentions that North Korea is at a point where it can affix a miniaturized nuclear warhead to the tip of an ICBM. It it doesn't, in at least not in detail, describe the ruggedization level of the reentry vehicle that North Korea has. And as Eric, as you mentioned a moment ago, the most recent test that we have, there's actually a video showing that reentry vehicle burning up on the way in. So we don't know if North Korea is actually at a point where they can deliver that nuclear weapon. But long story short, they're pretty darn close. And so due to these competing imperatives and North Korea's growing ability to be able to exert theirs if it so chooses is driving the United States and North Korea towards conflict. And this is why, if you read probably your Facebook feed, people are saying something blah, 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 World War III, uh, because we always imagine World War III to involve nuclear weapons. Now, it's not likely to be a world war if there is a conflict, because probably you wouldn't get the whole world involved, but it is kind of a scary thing, and that's why it's hot in the news right now. Exactly, and just another quick tangent... And I know I'm referring to my day job a lot in this episode, but there's just it, it's so highly relevant that it's hard not to. I was involved in an assessment of the imperatives of each country that are involved in this Korean Peninsula crisis, and it, it, it'll be published, well, this week as of recording of the podcast, but it might be last week as of release of the podcast. So at Geopolitical Futures, we analyzed China, 
North Korea, South Korea, Japan, U.S., and even Russia, all, all of the imperatives and competing interests that are going on in the Korean Peninsula to kind of lay out what the the landscape is and, and how understanding these imperatives might help shed some light on how different states are likely to act. So we'll, we'll put a link up to this deep dive in the show notes again. So Xander, I think at this point, people may, people who have been paying a lot of attention may have the question of, okay, we get the imperatives to unify the peninsula and stay stable, but how do nuclear weapons actually support that or advance that rather than just make their lives harder? Uh, you know, I've heard a lot about, well, they just want to have nuclear weapons so that they can, you know, bargain them away for some nice money to be able to pay their troops and eat. But is there something more complex going on? This is a leading question. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the common narrative that we hear, uh, well, besides, you know, Kim Jong-un is crazy and just wants to destroy the world, the, the other common narrative is North Korea wants a deliverable nuclear weapon as a deterrent to U.S. intervention on the Korean Peninsula, in part, again, because of the historical memory of the U.S.'s involvement in the Korean War. There is another theory. That, that I heard from uh, a gentleman named B.R. Myers. I, I didn't talk to him. as was on a podcast. And again, links in the show notes. Now, Myers is a professor of international studies at uh, Dongseo University in Busan, South Korea. And what he was suggesting is that the, the nuclear weapon, weapons program isn't really primarily a strategy of deterrent because, and we'll talk about this in a minute, North Korea already has a fairly effective conventional deterrent in the form of massive artillery pointed at one of the U.S.'s allies, South Korea, pointed at Seoul. So North Korea can do a lot of damage to a U.S. ally without a nuclear weapon. So Myers was saying that the the nuclear weapons program is actually a strategy to encourage a negotiation that would further their second imperative, unification of the Korean Peninsula. Because remember, again, North Korea needs to eject U.S. forces from the Korean Peninsula in order to successfully bully or push South Korea into making concessions uh, that would lead to a unified Korea in the North's image. And what Myers is saying is the nuclear weapons program is really an elaborate bargaining chip to use with the United States to say, okay, okay, we have these capabilities, but hey, you, you pull your troops out of South Korea, we get rid of our nuclear weapons program, we are no longer a threat to you, and um, that's really what you want, right? Because, I mean, the U.S. cares about its allies, but at the, the, end, of the end of the day, a country will always be more concerned about protecting its own homeland uh, as, a, as opposed to other countries. So getting rid of, rid of these of this nuclear weapons program is really the primary concern of the US. Yeah, you wouldn't want to get nuked to make sure that North Korea and South Korea don't go to war in 20 years from now, would you? I wouldn't either. And so it's actually, you know, plausible. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a fairly provocative and convincing argument that 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 this guy B.R. Myers put forward. And frankly, it makes sense in the context of what North Korea's strategy has been literally since 1948 when, when it was formed, which is finding a way to unify the Korean Peninsula under a North-led regime. So if they can eject U.S. forces, 
then they're kind of getting what they want. So could the United States defend against a North Korean nuclear strike? And the answer is maybe, which is not a great answer when it comes to nukes. The United States does have an anti-ballistic missile system. And it has come a long way since Reagan's Star Wars. It is maybe about 50% capable of taking out a ballistic missile with the technology that we have. However, of course, North Korea might send more than one at a time, which if you're going to nuke someone is probably a good strategy. And it may also send a bunch of decoys, which if you're going to nuke someone is also a good strategy, which would greatly decrease the United States' probability of actually being able to stop this from happening altogether. So if North Korea does have these nukes, it is a real and legitimate threat to perhaps you know the lives of millions of people in the United States, which again is a pretty scary thing. And it's what's driving the United States to respond in the way that it is. Yeah, and if you wonder, well, why why can't the U.S. just knock out these ballistic missiles? I mean, there's all this talk of the THAAD anti-missile program in South Korea. I mean, can't that just hit the missile as it leaves North Korea? And, I mean, Eric, like you said, maybe. But, I mean, the, the analogy that is used that I think is fairly evocative and convincing is that shooting down a ballistic missile is like hitting a bullet with another bullet. So... We, we can do it, and we have done it in controlled test circumstances, but it's just hard to tell if those test circumstances map accurately onto an actual wartime scenario. Yep, it's not the kind of chance that the United States would want to take. Exactly. So the situation has escalated. Uh, as the intelligence has become clear and North Korea's threats become more specific, and we'll talk about that in a sec, the United States responded by sending three aircraft carriers out of the six not in maintenance to the Korean Peninsula area. And they have since left a little bit. However, it is planning to send another one to the Western Pacific in late 2017. And and for the United States, this is an absurdly large number. The number of aircraft carriers it sent to the Korean Peninsula is about what the rest of the world has put together. And I can't think of any time when the United States has deployed this much hardware in one place. Now, This may also be a tough talk bargaining chip. However, it's the kind of thing that makes it far more likely that real conflict is going to emerge when you have the hardware in place than when you don't. North Korea, of course, responded with threats, which it does pretty much every day, as far as I can tell. Uh, You know, something, something, imperialist, evil, capitalist America, destroy... Rain, fire, and brimstone, sea of destruction. Fire and brimstone. Yeah. Yeah. That movie uh, about, that was a satire about assassinating Kim Jong-un. They called it an act of war and the United States would be punished and all that stuff. And so you have to take that with a grain of salt. However, they said, you know what? You know what? If we don't get our way, we're just going to nuke Guam. What's Guam, Eric? Oh, Guam is a U.S. protectorate. Uh, It is the home of a base and also some very nice people, as I understand. And so it would be a U.S. territory that is definitely within the range of North Korea's medium-range ballistic missiles, uh, which don't have to go as high or as fast and are less likely to burn up. So this is a very specific and very credible threat. I mean, holy smokes, they're going to nuke Guam. And the United States is actually taking it so seriously that the governor of Guam just today, I saw it on TV and don't have like a link to anything yet, 
um, made a public address about, you know, in response to this. And it was a lot of motherhood and apple pie. We're going to stand strong. We won't be frightened and such. But, like, we actually responded to a threat from North Korea, which we never do. We normally just ignore them like a whining child. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah. Now, I, I think this is a good example of of a time when you can reconsider rhetoric versus reality, right? Because if think about getting into a fight, I haven't been into in a lot of fights in my life, but if your goal is to actually hurt the other person, punch him in the face or something like that, you're not going to say, Hey, I'm about to punch you in the face with my right hand on your cheek, right? You just do it as quickly as possible, maybe with a feint with your left hand so that they don't know it's coming. So if North Korea's goal was to actually cause massive damage to the U.S.'s Anderson Air Force Base on Guam, they probably wouldn't come out and say, hey, we're about to cause massive damage to Anderson Air Force Base on Guam. They would just do it, which means that there's probably something going on here, that they're trying to portray that they have some some power over over U.S. interests, over U.S. military forces, and that the U.S. needs to carefully calculate their actions. Similarly, Donald Trump, you know, everyone's making a big deal about how Donald Trump is coming out and saying, you know, North Korea is awful, fury and fire, and I don't know. He had some tweet that was very evocative of of using military force, and people are thinking that, oh, my God, this crazy guy is going to lead us to war, right? But again, if the U.S. was actually about to strike North Korea, the goal would be to eliminate its nuclear weapons program. And a good strategy would not entail telling North Korea immediately before the strike that it's about to happen because it would give them a chance to hide all the wep- their weapons. It would probably happen after the rhetoric cools down a little bit. North Korea doesn't know it's coming and it's a complete and utter surprise. So there's one reconsider moment. Yeah. And so what's happening is both sides are more or less trying to get the other one to back down, Right. If North Korea is convinced that the United States really actually super duper means business, we will, you know, carry out a preemptive airstrike to take this stuff out. Consequences be damned. Yes, we're going to go after your artillery, too, so you can't take out South Korea or Seoul. Then it may say, you know what? Maybe we need to reconsider this. Ha ha. Or more importantly, it may convince China that, you know what, we need to put a little bit more pressure on North Korea to stop this because we really don't want to risk destabilizing that regime. So, you know what, maybe you've antagonized the United States enough. These guys actually really mean it. And by the way, it's possible we think Trump is crazy. Don't mess with this guy. Uh, It's called madman theory. And Richard Nixon used it. Go look it up. However, the risk of conflict is real, not because of the rhetoric, but independent of the rhetoric. Again, it is an imperative for the United States that North Korea not be able to strike the United States with a nuclear missile. If we fast forward to an alternate future in which we've just kind of sat around and let North Korea do whatever they want, and now they have 50 nuclear-armed ICBMs pointed at the United States, well, holy smokes, the United States is probably going to do something about it with its military. It's a little bit late at that point to get North Korea to say, you know what, we're just going to give them up. And in fact, we've been trying to get them to give them up for a long time. South Korea, for a long time, had a diplomatic strategy with North Korea called the Sunshine Policy, which is more or less if we're really nice to them uh, and we work together and we have some joint factory operations and we give them some stuff that they really need, maybe our relations will improve. There's an argument to be made that they didn't. 
it's also the case that we have, it's not like we've been sitting on our butts this whole time. The United States has attempted diplomatic and negotiated solutions with North Korea and its neighbors, including China. And they were actually all very responsive. Uh, China, Japan, South Korea, Russia, all those guys were very involved in trying to get North Korea to back down on its nuclear program. And that seems to have not worked, right? This was this was during Obama's time. Um, it, you know, it is what we know as facts is, one, this diplomatic effort happened in earnest, and two, North Korea still accelerated its nuclear program substantially. And so at some point, it is actually a very rational decision for the United States to say, we need to consider a military option, or at least take a military option seriously enough that it is clear to North Korea that their actions would have military consequences. We have tried diplomacy. It does not work. Now, that may not be necessarily the right answer, but it is a rational response by the United States to consider. And I think something we're seeing right now is the United States trying to go through and check the box for every single other way they could possibly solve this crisis without a military conflict. Because one thing certainly that the political establishment learned from the Iraq war is that jumping to the military solution before other options have been tried have, is not only not effective, but it's also politically can backfire on you. So that's why we're seeing the U.S. trying to impose new types of sanctions on North Korea, even though they haven't been effective. Tillerson has talked about trying to impose crude oil imports into North Korea, which would limit their ability to wage a war against the South if a war broke out. I think that's where we are. That's that's the stage of the scenario right now. So what about China and all of this, right? Because a great deal of attention has been paid on China and its purported influence over North Korea. I mean, Trump has been saying, oh, you know, China needs to act. We're willing to make trade concessions with North Korea that my administration originally wasn't planning to make if you deal with our North Korea problem. And to some extent, North Korea knows that China is stuck with it. So the, the question is, what what can China actually do? What influence does China have over North Korea? You know, in theory, if China had the capacity to, which I'm not convinced that they do, they could punish the hell out of North Korea, but too much, and the regime collapses, which China can't tolerate, right? Yeah, Trump did offer to negotiate a trade deal with China in exchange for them dealing with this, but those talks broke down, and it looks like that that option may not be able to work. The United States and China can't actually reach an agreement on a trade deal that's acceptable enough for both of them to be able to go forward with this. That said, I don't really think China is sort of waiting for a trade deal to take what action it's capable of. China doesn't want to war on the Korean border, on the Korean Peninsula. It doesn't want the United States to have to seriously consider striking the North Korean regime and, and possibly destabilizing it. China does have an interest in trying to prevent all of that from happening. However, its power is fundamentally limited because North Korea knows that China can't get rid of it. And this is one of those constraints. And I, I wrote a piece for geopolitical futures that analyze China's constraints relative to its ability to influence North Korea. Because it's kind of become common sense that like, oh, well, China is North Korea's patron, and therefore it can it can determine what North Korea does. But it's just not that simple. And if you look at some of the specifics, you know, there are these sanctions on North Korea coal import or coal, North Korean coal exports. 
that were imposed at the end of 2016, which decreased North Korea's trade by $600 million, which is actually a really significant part of its economy, and that limits its ability to get hard currency. But, you know, that was supposed to inhibit the development of their nuclear weapons program, and it didn't. They kept going. So what else can China can do? What else can China do? One of the answers potentially is sanctions on crude oil. That's one thing that has not yet been pursued that Tillerson, uh, Secretary of State Tillerson, has said the U.S. would be interested in implementing against North Korea. But you know, even, even if they do that, it might cripple North Korea's ability to conduct a conventional war, but they might say, all right, we, we're not going to be able to invade South Korea, so now we really need a nuclear weapon. At the end of the day, North Korea is its own state with its own security imperatives, and China only has so much influence over it. Yeah, when the United States in the late 1930s and early 1940s imposed oil sanctions on Japan, Japan was running out of oil to conduct their war in China. They were in a lot of trouble. So what it did was it actually forced Japan's hand to try to take Southeast Asia where they could get the oil that they needed. And they realized that if they did that, it would push the U.S. to war. So what did they do? They bombed Pearl Harbor and said, look, we'll knock the U.S. out, and then we'll be able to take Southeast Asia. We'll be able to get the oil we need to take China, which is the thing we really want anyway. Everything will be great. And so inadvertently, it was a diplomatic sanctions solution that led Japan to strike in the first place. And of course, there's other things going on with that, but this was all part of the causal... Um, the causal chain. And so even sanctions against North Korea might end up backfiring. So what it ultimately means is that every option kind of bites, right? Is kind of bad. And right now, the United States and China, again, who wants to deal with this, are choosing between a lot of bad options and a lot of options where their capability is substantially limited. So if it was to turn into... A military conflict of some sort. Xander, how might it turn out? Because I, I suspect you've actually researched this a lot more than I have. The, the, the founder of Geopolitical Futures, George Friedman, kind of gamed out what the scenario could look like. And he's not saying that an outbreak of a war would necessarily unfold this way, but that there are considerations that U.S. military planners need to take in considerations. So this isn't like entirely my perspective, although I, I buy the logic of it, and I'll, and I'll introduce some of my own ideas at the end. So... The, the consideration that the U.S. Needs to, needs to make in planning for an attack against North Korea are all the artillery that is massed along the demilitarized zone, the border between North and South Korea. I mean, North Korea has something like 21,000 artillery guns, and they're a combination of small and large caliber and different types of rocket launchers. Many of these cannot fire far enough to actually hit Seoul, but at least several hundred can, potentially low number of thousands. Uh, and, of course, the 21,000 guns are all along the border, so some of them are, are further east and not close enough to Seoul to do damage. But some estimates by a defense research group called the Nautilus Group estimated that if North Korea were to focus its artillery on population centers in Seoul, as opposed to, say, hitting Seoul's artillery, which could respond, so a... a a mass casualty strategy as opposed to a restrict military strategy that 65,000 South Koreans could be killed in the first day of an artillery barrage. So this is, this is the conventional deterrent threat that North Korea has been able to maintain since the 50s, regardless of its nuclear capabilities. And 
this is also part of the reason why South Korea is a lot more hesitant about the U.S. striking North Korea than, say, the U.S. or Japan, because they're not directly affected. So the U.S. would have to consider not only taking out the nuclear weapons program, but also as quickly as possible neutralizing the threat from the North's artillery. So how do you do that? Well, you can't really do it with cruise missiles because there's just too many of them. You need more explosives than that. And this would, this would basically have to come from one of the U.S.'s strategic bombers, so the B-52s, the B-1s, or the B-2s. Now, the problem with just flying strategic, uh, strategic bombers over from Anderson Air Force Base at Guam is North Korea also has a fairly elaborate anti-air defense system set up all over the country. And these are, or they're, they're rockets and missiles that can both target, lock onto aircrafts, even at high altitudes, and take them out. So in order to eliminate the artillery, the U.S. would have to be willing to accept a high number of casualties among its own military. And this is not really something that it's willing to do, right? So the question is then, how do you take out the anti-air defense? And there's a couple of ways to do that, none of which are particularly appealing. One is with uh, this, this weapon system called the Wild Weasel. So you can, you can fly over anti-air defenses with your radar on, which lets the anti-air defenses track you because it locks onto your radar, right? The alternative is not doing it with radar, but then you're kind of flying blind. Wild Weasels use the radar targeting capabilities of the anti-air defenses to say, ah, that's what I need to hit. So they target the defense's radar targeting system and uses that to guide it in to take out the missile system. So that's one way it can do that. And the U.S. would probably do that. The Wild Weasel system would be affixed to its F-16s that are stationed in South Korea. That's probably how that would happen. Another option, if the U.S. has this capability, and I, I don't really know if they do, would be using electromagnetic pulse weapons or EMPs to basically take out the electronic systems of these anti-air defenses. And once the anti-air defenses are gone, you know, boom, strategic bombers can fly over the artillery and take that out and prevent mass casualties in South Korea while it concurrently takes out the nuclear weapons program. So that's option two. I don't know if it's possible because I don't know if the U.S. has tactical EMP weapons. The third option is saying, okay, well, you know, if we fly in a bomber type that can't be targeted by radar, then that that bomber can take out all, all the artillery and isn't at risk. And we have one bomber that might be able to do that, and that's the B-2, the stealth bomber. The problem with weapon systems is that what they're supposed to do in theory don't always work out in practice. So in theory, the B-2 should be able to fly over North Korea's demilitarized zone and conduct a strategic bombing campaign against North Korea's artillery without North Korea's anti-air defenses being able to target it. We don't know if that can actually happen because we haven't really seen the B-2 used in in a wartime situation like this where there's overlapping uh, anti-air defense capabilities. And the fourth option, and I do know the U.S. Has this, has this weapon capability, and it's not particularly pretty, is saying forget the anti-air defenses. We're not even going to worry about those. What we're going to do is use our tactical nuclear weapons force to eliminate entirely and utterly all of the artillery that the North has amassed along its borders. Tactical nuclear weapons, all that means is they're usually smaller. 
and they're, they're used kind of in the course of a battle to achieve limited goals. So in this case, it would be eliminating artillery, whereas strategic nuclear weapons, which is what people usually think of when they think of nuclear weapons, are made, meant to take out whole cities in order not just to cause deaths among the population, but really to eliminate the enemy's ability to conduct war, so to eliminate their industrial base. The U.S. has both of these, tactical and strategic nuclear warheads, and one way to eliminate the threat to South Korea before a major strike on North Korea's nuclear program would be using tactical nuclear weapons against this artillery. So those are a handful of ways that this strike can play out, and I think it's, it's if nothing else, evidence that it's far more complicated and complex and that the U.S.'s military planners need to be considering a lot of options that don't always get talked about sort of day-to-day in mass media. Yep, and this is in deep contrast to the invasion of Iraq, in which Iraq had fairly unsophisticated uh, anti-air systems, and so the United States was able to suppress enemy air defenses, or SEAD, very quickly using non-stealth uh, strategic bombers and fighter bombers. Uh, they mostly actually concentrated on the Iraqi Air Force uh, and a few missile sites. And if you remember the pictures or the the, the nighttime video of like flak going up uh, into the sky or like cannons shooting off dumb rounds, uh, these were not really a threat to U.S. planes and we didn't lose any in that engagement. Uh, I did think of a fifth possible scenario, Xander. Hit me. Hop on a boat and go east to Essos to summon the mother of dragons, the legitimate ruler of all of Westeros, Daenerys Targaryen, to bring in the dragons and just send them along the line, the DNZ, uh, to take out all the artillery for you. I don't know if the United States has considered that. Yeah, I mean, she would obviously kick the hell out of out of North Korea's artillery, right? Mm-hmm. And then they would bend the knee. <laughs> Oh, God, the show's so good. Oh, I'm so addicted to the show. Um, yeah. We won't do any spoilers, but I will say that in in contemplating the imperatives that we've talked about on this show and thinking about how statecraft functions at sort of a uh, cold calculations level as opposed to the rhetoric that usually mass media gets caught up in is kind of similar to the cold calculations that happen in Game of Thrones. I mean, Game of Thrones is based loosely on the 15th century English Civil War, the War of the Roses, in which one family went after the other, went after the other. is basically the Yorks versus the Lancasters. And when you think about statecraft, you have to think about what your enemy can do to you and what can get in the way of you achieving your goals. So there are some similarities there. Mm. So there you go. Uh, HBO providing you the geopolitical training you need to be able to reconsider what's going on <laughs> in the world. But back to our regularly scheduled program. So with all of this, here's the big reconsider moment, right? A lot of the rhetoric we hear in the news and in particular, you know, social media, which, you know, my campaign against that, is that we're dealing with like two kind of wacky dudes or at least one wacky dude uh, that are kind of having their own spat for no particular reason. And, oh, my God, are we going to nuke each other over these two morons having a spat? World War Three, Of course. World War Three. Oh, my God, we're all going to die. Yes. And, um, you know, I even saw an article that said fear over Trump having the nuclear codes has been revived. And, I mean, to be fair, one can always question a leader's capacity to be able to deal in times of crisis. 
We have had leaders in the past that have stumbled substantially and made some very bad calculations. And throughout history, there are a lot of examples of leaders making bad calculations that led to the demise of either their power or their nation entirely. This isn't something that can't happen. There can be a major miscalculation. However, what we hope that you'll see from this episode is that the drivers pushing the United States and North Korea towards conflict are not based on the whims of two individuals or even more than two individuals. They're based on these competing geopolitical imperatives, these, these necessary security needs that both nations have that are in fundamental conflict. And those driving imperatives actually make it very hard to avoid conflict because what you're essentially saying is one of these nations must be fundamentally insecure. And that's something that almost no nation is going to allow for itself. I think one of the ways to think about this situation is given what we know, given how the North Korean nuclear program has developed, why it's developing it, and what the United States options really are, you might ask yourself, okay, how do I think Trump is going to deal with this? And also, how do I think Obama might deal with this? And you might look back and say, well, Obama dealt with North Korea very differently. To which you respond, yes, North Korea did not have nearly as developed a nuclear program and... During the Obama regime, the North Korea nuclear program developed substantially. Um, and, you know, just from a factual way, nobody's fault necessarily, we failed to deter them from furthering their nuclear program to a point that it was a threat to the United States. And so if we had a different leader, Obama, Bush, Clinton, pick whoever you like, how might they and their administration deal with this? What options would they be realistically considering? If they said, hey, we're considering a nuclear option here, tweets aside, how might you react to that? What would you think might be going through their heads? Because we tend to mistake rhetoric for reality, right? Trump's rhetoric is very different from those of his predecessors. And regardless of how you feel about it, it's not surprising that one's initial reaction is going to is going to be to believe that rhetoric is reality. However, what we're seeing is that Trump's rhetoric operates fairly independently from the geopolitical reality that is around him, that is driving United States decision-making on how to deal with its geopolitical problems, in this case, North Korea. So as this very messy story unfolds, Look to the news you get and the opinions you get with a grain of salt and think about what's really going on under, you know, behind the curtain here that is driving these situations. What options do the United States and North Korea realistically have? And out of those options, what's going to be the best one that we can take? People are tense, understandably so. A nuclear-armed North Korea that can actually deliver a warhead to the West Coast or, or elsewhere in the U.S. is not a particularly comforting thought. I mean, I live in L.A. That's It could potentially become a legitimate threat, right? There, as a result of this, and as a result of the political landscape in the United States right now, a lot of rhetoric being tossed around to describe the events on the Korean Peninsula in ways that aren't necessarily representative of the underlying geopolitical realities. So 
as you digest and encounter new information, either talking about a Trump tweet or something seemingly crazy that Kim Jong-un has talked about, always, always take a moment to reconsider and ask yourself, is this representative of reality or, or is this rhetoric indicative of something that maybe isn't immediately apparent or intuitive? And with that, dear listeners, as always, don't let the pundits or Trump or your Facebook friends or Twitter or Kim Jong-un do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. This is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.